Welcome to Success Fundamentals, hosted by myself, Chris Sykes, and my co-host, Brian Gosek. We are on a mission to seek out some of the most successful people in our network that have been able to define what success means to them so you can draw the map of your own path and take your first steps. We hope you enjoyed today's episode to get one step closer to your success goals. Starting a business is exciting. And one of the fundamentals of starting a business is making sure you have the proper legal structure. But legal structure only takes you so far. You want to make sure that your personal assets are protected. And that's where Corporate Direct comes in. Getting started is easy. First, you tell them about your business or investment. Second, they do a business name check. Third, they file the paperwork. And fourth, you receive the documents and you're official. To get $100 off your business setup, go to successfundamentals.com. Click on the Corporate Direct link. When the information form asks, where did you hear about us? Type in Success Fundamentals and they will take it from there. Corporate Direct, asset protection done right. Now, back to the show. Welcome to another edition of Success Fundamentals, where we give you the fundamental tools to be successes in your own lives by people who have already done it. I am your co-host, Chris Sykes. And I am Brian Goldsack. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have the president and CEO of the I Have a Dream Foundation, Eugenia O. Eugenia, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris and Brian. I really appreciate the invitation. Absolutely, absolutely. Happy to have you. 100%. How have your summer been so far? Everything's been good? So far, so good. I even got to take a, a two-week vacation recently, so I am feeling refreshed and recharged. Fantastic. Was it was it domestic or did you go abroad? Oh, it was driving distance. I uh, just spent a couple of weeks at the beach with my family. I loved it. Love it, love it, love it. So, Eugene, I want to get to it. I know that um you run a very uh, successful organization and I have a dream foundation, um, and I'm pretty sure you... And, based on your position and your successes that you have had, you have some type of drive. Can you take us back where, where this, you know, to, to the beginning of where this drive started from and how did you work your way up to where you are currently? Sure. So, you know, I think um, I would really attribute a lot of my drive and a lot of kind of my inner motivation to my parents you know, they are immigrants from Korea and they came here in 1977. And, you know, they've always uh, kind of stressed the importance of education, of integrity, of service, and um, I think kind of valuing, you know, community. And I, I, I look to my parents both as examples and, you know, both um, as a kind of a motivating influence for me because, you know, they not only pushed me, you know, um, to kind of always try my best, you know, and, and kind of live life in a, in a fashion where you have no regrets, right? So you, you want to look back and say, I could have done more, I could have tried harder. But I also think they very much modeled a lot of the behaviors that I mm. um, strive to achieve, you know, um, some, of, some of those behaviors being, you know, very much rooted in, you know, treating others uh, with utmost respect, regardless of who they are, what they're doing, their position in life, you know, you, you treat, you treat others with respect and, you know, really kind of the integrity piece comes, comes in, in always doing your best in no matter what you do and respecting others and valuing and honoring others who are also doing their best. And 
I, I, you know, I, I can look at this now retrospectively and see so many of those lessons that, that have come through for me in my own life. But um, I, I don't think I appreciated or even recognized when I was growing up how unique that can be for, mm-hmm. you know, kind of two immigrants from Korea, you know, kind of very, in some ways, typical, you know, stereotypical, like they they wanted me to achieve, they wanted those good grades, you know, the, you know, come home with the 97, what's going on with those other three points, what happened, you know, you got to go to Harvard, all that kind of very like Northeast Korean American, you know, immigrant experience. But, you know, they were very, very progressive in a lot of other ways. And, you know, um, one memory, a very salient kind of lucid memory I have is, you know, when my mom would drop us off at our school, the traffic guard, who helped to direct the traffic coming into the middle of the high school in my, in my town, you know, she always pointed her at her and said, you know, look at the way she does her job. She does her job with such joy. She is smiling. She is waving. She knows the parents, she knows the children, and she shows up with that level of, of kind of a, a striving for excellence in her work. And I really admire that traffic guard. You know, and my mom said that to me all the time. And that really kind of has resonated with me throughout the years, because I think, you know, it it just shows that um, everyone has an important role to play, you know, and and I think like the way that we play that role, uh, the way that we show up for that role is so important, regardless of what that role might be. Absolutely. So, Eugenia, you, you touched on two things that I was hoping you might be able to dive a little bit deeper into. The first one was... Uh, living a life of joy or putting yourself in a career that, that you find joy every day. Uh, so, so I guess the first question I have is, uh, is that a matter of finding the right career or could you, or is that more of a, a mindset, like you could be basically in any career and still have that joy? And the second thing is living a life of purpose, but I'm going to follow up on that question after you answer the joy one. Uh, Yeah, Brian, that's such a great question because actually, you know, I I did this exercise in this kind of executive program I was in once, and it turns out that joy is my number one value. And, you know, we, through this series of kind of calling and, you know, looking at, looking at the different values that rose to the top for me. And so I think your question is an interesting one because I kind of think it, it, it is both, you know, to give, a, to give an, an easy answer, the easy way out. But, you know, I do think that um, in, in terms of the way you show up for your role, you know, you can choose joy and you can find joy in, in whatever you are doing as long as you focus on, on the positive aspects. And that is a mind frame and a mindset. And I think mindset is so important going into whatever you're doing. However, I do think that if you can find, you know, a, a role, uh, a job, a career that really allows you to live out your values, right? Like what you what you think and how you act and what you do, if they can all come into alignment, you can really maximize that potential for joy and fulfillment, maybe, that you find in your role. And I think that, you know, that's something that everyone should strive for, to try and discover what that, that, 
career, what that role, what that job could be, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I feel very fortunate in that I do feel like a lot of my values have come into alignment in my current role. And, you know, I, I'm very fulfilled, you know, I have a lot of contentment and satisfaction from what I do um, and what I get paid to do, which I think is, you know, very, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Hmm. Excellent. And, and going back to living a life of no regrets, actually, Chris and I often speak about this both on air and privately, you know, mm-hmm. when, when we're, when we're coming to the end of our life and we reflect back on, you know, what we've done, uh, could we have done more, uh, for you, was there anything or is there anything that kind of echoes in the back of your mind uh, that you you don't want to regret later that you're actively trying to 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 avoid or or make sure you're conquer conquering? Sure. You know, I think so this past year and a half has been absolutely insane, you know, in every 360 degree way, you know, and in ways that we couldn't have predicted. And, you know, when I, when I started to work with the Ivy Dream Foundation, and when I stepped into this role of president and CEO about four years ago, you know, the 20 year old Eugenia would have said, wow, like, this is what I kind of dreamed about doing, like the things that I did in college and you know, the jobs that I had after college were all kind of, you know, working towards this ultimate goal of really trying to have an impact on the lives of children who are in communities where they don't have the opportunities that they deserve. And I feel like, you know, I found such a great fit, right? And then 2020 happened. And I think one of the best things about 2020 was that it just kind of made me and I think every single person on this globe just question everything, right? And you really started to think critically and started to introspect about kind of, you know, what went wrong? Yeah. What was my, what was my role in it? Did I have a role in it? Could I have a role in making it better? Right. And so, you know, just in full transparency, I really started to think about, okay, so in the United States, we have this structure of this private sector really kind of stepping in and doing a lot of the things that frankly, probably the government should be doing. And, you know, that, that, is, that is my personal view, you know, in, in terms of providing a social safety net for, for, for so many citizens and so many people who are here. And I just started to really think about, like, am I making the problem worse or am I making the problem better? Like, is where I sit, you know, am I using and utilizing kind of the, you know, the, the influence and the power that I might have in this role? in a way that is actually really addressing the root cause of these issues? Or am I simply sitting on top of it and perpetuating it, you know? Yeah. And that was, that was really hard for me. You know, I really, um, I struggled with that. And I struggled openly with it, you know, um, in terms of speaking to, you know, people within our organization about this and really trying to figure out, I'm like, can I, can I do better? Can I do more? And, you know, I think the answer is absolutely yes, I can do better and I can do more. And I've been trying and I've been working on that. But, um, you know, when you speak about kind of regrets, it's, it's like, I think I, I, I would regret if I did not have um, the, if I had not had that introspective moment and really started to think more deeply about the systemic issues, the root cause of these challenges. Like why does an organization like the Ivy Dream Foundation need to exist? 
Mm-hmm. And really start to peel that back and think about what I am doing to answer that question, you know, um, and just be more explicit and open about it. Because I think um, uh, one, of the, one of the challenges has been that, you know, I, I want to be very clear that I want to live in a world where an organization like Ivy Dream doesn't need to exist. Because every child mm. by date of their birth has the resources and has the opportunities that they deserve by dint of birth, right? You don't just get these opportunities because you are blessed to be born to parents who get the system, can work the system, have the resources. So um, I, I, I think I've become more vocal about that. And, and that has helped me feel more comfortable about my role and about continuing to be in this position and, you know, trying again to lean into that concept of, okay, like no regrets. Well, so Eugenia, you're a trained lawyer and um, you went to a very prestigious school, uh, <laughs> Penn Law, and you did little legal work, but then you pivoted into the nonprofit space. What, what sparked that pivot and why pivot from the legal, the legal function to a nonprofit role? Yep. Yep. So just to clarify, I went to Penn as an undergrad Penn, yes, and sorry. I went to Temple for law school, also in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, between those two, you know, educational experiences, I worked for Teach for America which is another nonprofit, a national nonprofit that's focused on education and, you know, kind of improving educational opportunities for under-resourced communities. And um, at the time that I graduated from undergrad, there was this really big push by Teach for America to recruit folks to, to, um, to their cause. And I was, I was, you know, I was told, I totally drank that Kool-Aid. I was recruited (laughs) and, You know, all throughout college, I had been in different roles of, you know, community organizing, activism, and, you know, really focused on different civil rights and civil liberties issues. And, you know, came to truly believe that, you know, education was a civil rights issue of our generation, which was kind of their clarion call at the time. Like, education is the civil rights, you know, issue of our generation, which now, you know, I've come to to understand that civil rights is still the civil rights issue of our generation. You know, it's oh, yeah. not just all in education, but I, you know, was part of this massive expansion effort that Teach for America was undergoing. You know, they were literally trying to like triple and triple every year the number of teachers that they were sending into, into under-resourced areas. And I really, really fell in love with kind of just the work of working at a nonprofit with so many like-minded motivated people uh, at, at a very pre-professional undergraduate institution like Penn, the concept of working at a nonprofit was not something that was even introduced to us, right? It's kind of like law school, mm-hmm. med school, finance, finance, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, if you're going to go crazy, maybe like you go to a startup, you know, and, and, you know, the internet startup boom, but we, um, we, we just did not know, I didn't understand what the nonprofit, you know, industry was, right? So I come to work at Teach for America and, you know, I, I was in a, uh, an entry-level role doing fundraising and I, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved working at Teach for America. I met, you know, some amazing colleagues and went back to, went to law school, you know, stayed, stayed on my, you know, pre-professional pen path, you know, my Korean American immigrant child path, you know, and, 
after, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I, I got a great job working at a large law firm in Philadelphia, which is where I went to law school as well. And I just really missed the mission-driven work. You know, I, I got a great training and I was working on some really interesting cases with great clients, but I was not attached to the mission of our clients the way that I was attached to the mission of my, pre- my previous job. So I ended up connecting back up with my old, my former boss's boss. So uh, the executive director at Teach for America New York City had actually moved on to become president and CEO of I Have a Dream Foundation. Mm. And I said, listen, I, I, you know, ideally I would love to use my law degree and kind of practice, you know, find a way to practice in the nonprofit sector. But I know that some of, some of that work is also really kind of um, not exactly aligned with what I'm interested in. And it's also hard to, to, to be in those roles, right? So she immediately offered me uh, a role um, within I Have a Dream. And some of it was to, you know, to liaise with our outside legal counsel, but it was also kind of manage the finance, the administration, the operations, and some of the legal stuff. So it's a, it's a small organization uh, at the central level because, you know, we, we have... Um, our model at, at I Have a Dream Foundation is that each of our affiliates is its own separate 501c3. So it's, it's similar mm-hmm. to a franchise model, analogous to a franchise model. So within the central office, it's, it was like a team of maybe six or seven people at the time. Mm-hmm. So you kind of come on and you, with this understanding that you have, you may have a title and a role, but really it's all assignments <laughs> as given by the CEO, <laughs> right? Whatever, 100%. whatever, whatever. You, yep. So so that's kind of how I, I came back. And that was 10 years ago. And I've been in a few different roles since, since then. And, you know, I, I have really enjoyed it. I was going to ask you, I wonder, was it, was it like a, it seems like what sparked the interest, again, this is an assumption, but sparked the interest in your nonprofit work was more so exposure to that line of work, because in, in terms of, because you said at Penn, it was all about, you know, like you said, either going to go into medical law finance and being exposed to a different type of work. Awakened something in you like this is more interesting. We're actually working towards something or working to try to solve an issue in the world as opposed to working for either a firm to make more money or, 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 what, or whatever the case may be. Because my next question was going to ask you, was there a specific event that sparked, um, that sparked you to go down to the nonprofit role, but it just seems like it was just exposure to this line of work or this, this entire world or this different side of the world that, Oh, well, like, you know, these people are working hard to trying to solve X now. My, so since you answered my, that question, mm-hmm. what about, I have a dream that what do, you mean, do I have a dream? You know, so I said, what, what, what is it, what is it about? I have a dream that, you know, I know that you said you had a connection to it, but what about it as opposed to w- working there for a few years and like, you know what, let me go to a different nonprofit. What about mm-hmm. I have a dream made anchored you to that cause? Yeah. Yeah. Chris. And I think you totally hit the nail on the head with the exposure piece. You know, I, I feel like, um, very much like this kind of work was almost an extension of what I had been doing in college, like organizing people for a cause, you know, different campaigns, trying to get things done. And I just had no concept that 
you could just keep doing this as an adult and get paid for it. You know, I mean, it just wasn't even something that occurred to me, was, you know, was introduced to me. And so I do think that exposure piece is so important for uh, young people today to just understand what the options are, what the opportunities are, um, because, you know, you don't want to limit people's potential in any way, right? You want to help them kind of explore every crevice and understand what there is. Um, and then in terms of I Have a Dream, you know, we have been around I Have a Dream. We, we are a movement to empower young people to achieve their dreams through mentorship and education. Mm-hmm. And we are an extremely long-term, deep program. You know, we say we work with our youth from first grade to first job, from kindergarten to career. It is every day after school, on the weekends, over the summers. I mean, it's it's an intense program. And I think what drew me to Eye of a Dream and the work that we do is that it makes it made sense to me. Like, if we want to change the lives of young people, we need to do it one at a time. And we need to meet them where they are. And we need to invest deeply in them. Um, just like you would a child from a wealthy community, all that is poured into that child will never go to waste, right? And I think that when I kind of, you know, took a step back and looked at the way that other nonprofits and other maybe, you know, similar, similarly missioned youth development programs are doing their work, I had this sense that some of what was happening was really being driven by this concept of ROI, you know, how can we get kind of the outcome or the product that we want as cheaply as possible. And, you know, I bris- I bristled at that notion because, you know, we would never try to take shortcuts with our own children. Right. And I, at, with my own children, I do not. Right. And, you know, I would not accept any less, or a child just because they are from a poor community. And the I Have a Dream Foundation, in terms of its programming, you know, it's, it's kind of um, gone against this trend of trying to increase ROI. You know, when, when programs are getting kind of shorter and quicker and more intense, you know, we kind of have looked at our data and said, okay, we are the initial program started with sixth graders it's a little too late. We need more time. Like if we want them to be on grade level math and reading by sixth grade, we need to start with them probably by third grade. Right. So our new Mm -hmm. policy is that we are newish or newer policies that we don't, we start with kids no later than third grade and ideally first or kindergarten, because we know that those years, those investment, that investment of time in those years is critical. Right. And so, um, you know, we, we just, we don't, take any shortcuts and we don't really try to take any shortcuts. And that really resonated with me. You know, when I joined in 2011, I I saw and I felt that a lot of other programs are trying to, I mean, I'm not going to say they're trying to take shortcuts, but they were kind of like, okay, let's pull back and extract what we can do. And like, maybe it's just SAT prep. So we come in hard in 10th grade, do that SAT prep in 10th and 11th grade and help them, you know, get, get into a good college, but it takes so much more than that, you know, yeah. um, and you know, our, our goal ult- ultimately is really we want to break the cycle of poverty for the children that we serve, and you know, we we know that college, two year, four year, vocational trade, some kind of post secondary experience, 
um, will really increase the odds that that happens. So we we also put aside some money at the beginning of the program for our, our students, we call them dreamers or dreamer scholars to use towards post-secondary expenses. And so, and we tell them that you're in first grade now, but when you get ready to do whatever you're going to do after high school, we have money that we've set aside for you because we want to help you with that financial burden as well. Um, mm. And so I think, you know, that all of that really appealed to me, this really fulsome, wholesome, robust programming. You know, when I saw kind of other organizations trying to kind of cut down the programming and just, you know, what's the silver bullet? What's the secret sauce? There's no silver bullet. There's no secret sauce. It's just time. It's yeah. trust. It's investment. And our organization attracts a very specific type of person that is looking for that longevity and that trust. And so once I started, you know, and got to know everyone, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, 20% of our staff has been on for 10 years or more. Oh, wow. You know, and I'm, I'm just, and that's very rare in the nonprofit industry. There's a lot of burnout there, there, there's, you know, somewhat of a revolving door, but, you know, I think we attract and we retain a certain type of person because our program is all it's built around this concept of longevity and trust and trusting relationships. And that takes a lot of time to build. Um, one of our executive directors, you know, I, I think she puts it so beautifully. Her name is Yolanda. She she's, uh, leads our New Jersey affiliate. She says, it takes years to peel back the layers of the onion, you know, for these children and for these families. We work really closely with their families, their parents to build to get to the core and, and then to rebuild from a place of trust so that they know that we are on their team and that we are, we are sticking around. We're not in and out, you know, we're not yeah. one, we're not two years, we're 15, 16 years. And so I like to say kind of, you know, there's, there's kind of the Apple or the Dell model, right? And when Steve Jobs was trying to, you know, spend all this money on putting bells and whistles and making a beautifully designed computer. I think people thought he was crazy, but um, because you could do this, you could just get a PC for $400, $500. It's fine. It functions. Right. And so we're like the Apple, you know, we just, we just invest and invest in, and we want these qualitative outcomes that you can only get with time. So sorry, that was a very long answer. No, no, no. That's no, that beautiful. Did, that was beautiful. So, so you, you, you said something that, um, that got me thinking about peeling back that onion and getting to the core of, I guess, like the, the children that you help and where the issues come from. And once you get to that core, correcting and building and making them better. So if you were to peel back the onion on your organization and get to the core mission of the organization, or more specifically, what the organization is striving for. Um, if all goes well, and you live out your life, and your career is successful, what impact do you hope, or what legacy do you hope that you leave? So, I, uh, I think there's a kind of couple things. One is like me, Eugenia, right? But then there's also I have a dream, the organization that's that's you know 40 years old this year, um, you know. And at, first, of all, I'll just speak for I, but you know, I have a dream. You know, I think our vision is to be able to serve so many more young people in communities of need, 
and to build more partnerships um, with school districts, with public housing. You know, these are kind of our main public partners. Um, and, and to be able to have and serve more dreamers. You know, there are so many communities of need. And I think at the same time, we want to think about what kind of influence we can have you know, at that systems level, right? So that we can work with schools, that we can work with public housing, that we can work with our partners to say, you know, our program is replicable. It's replicable, you know, and it takes it takes staff, yes, and it takes training, yes, but we are more than happy to kind of share with you what it is that we do and provide a blueprint and a roadmap um, so that again, you know, all children by dint of birth can have the opportunities and the resources that they need to unlock their own potential, right? Hmm. And um, I think, again, you know, there is no secret sauce. It's time and trust. And, you know, our, our outcomes have been fantastic in terms of, you know, looking at certain indicators like high school graduation, college matriculation, college graduation, second generations of dreamers, children who go to college and graduate, you know, and kind of really, you know, play out that that breaking the cycle of poverty piece that we're really, you know, that we're really invested in. Um, and I think we, I, I don't know, I don't feel, and I think I can speak, you know, for many, many people in the organization that um, any sort of proprietariness around this, because the more children that we can help, the better, right? Like we don't, <laughs> it doesn't have to happen under I have a dream to me. I mean, we want to share what we know and bring more and more people under our, our tents, right? Um, and then for me, I think, you know, it, it has been uh, 10 years that I've been here and we've had a lot of different ups and downs around kind of the identity of I have a dream, what our program means, what are the parameters of our program, what are the minimum minimum requirements and kind of defining our programming a little bit more um, so that when we start new programs, there's an easier blueprint and roadmap. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that I'm really proud about that we can kind of say like, okay, if you want to start a program, like here, here is how, how you do it. Um, and then the other thing is I have been very intentional about trying to be very explicit in centering racial equity in everything that we do. And that's been really important to me because um, as an organization that's 40 years old, you know, pretty veteran, pretty kind of senior in the space of youth development, college Absolutely. access, um, there are, you know, I think we have at different points in time shied away from the conversation around, you know, the impact of race and racism in the United States. And, you know, we kind of have maybe um, glossed over. I mean, we, there wasn't even any vocabulary to talk about this in 1981 when we started, right? Even the concept mm. of a private individual saying, I am going to support another group of private individuals in a philanthropic way, that was very radical, right? I mean, people were giving to like Salvation Army, or maybe they were giving to their alma mater. Like the concept mm -hmm. of philanthropy to support other individuals was new, right? And I think what we've what we've recognized over the past several years, starting kind of, you know, in 2015, 2016, is that we had been hesitant and maybe honestly afraid to talk about race and how that is, is a root cause of, of so much of what we're what we're dealing with. And so 
we have been now intentionally talking about it with all of our stakeholders, from board members to dreamers to staff members and alumni. And I think, you know, it's made us smarter as an organization. It's made us more compassionate and empathetic. And when last year happened, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, we were prepared to have those conversations with our board members and our dreamers because we've been having them for a few years, you know, and I was really proud of that. And that I think is, if, if that can be my ultimate legacy, I would be, I would remain very proud of that. You know, Eugenia, I want to, I want to take a shift here because I'm, I'm very curious about your, your perspective on this success fundamentals. What Brian and I's mission um, for the show is to give people the fundamentals they need to achieve success, right? Most people, when they, get, when they go out or they start something, most people sometimes don't start either because of two things. One, the fear, fear of failure, thing that, or they just don't know what to start or what they need to have in their toolbox in order to be successful. Like, right, so you can, you can go out and aspire to build a brick wall, but if you don't know how to lay a brick, you don't, you're, that wall will never get built. So from your perspective, I want to ask you three things. The first, what is your personal definition of success? Two, what do you think from your experience, what are some of the, some of the fundamental things that people need to have in order to be successful? And three, specifically in the nonprofit sector, what are some of the fundamentals people need to have to be successful in that world? Okay, great. Thanks for the question. That's uh, okay. You're, you're making me think on my feet. That's good. So what is my own personal definition of success? You know, I think for me, um, success is really finding that alignment uh, in your values so that what you think, how, how you act, and the impact that you have can really, you know, be in alignment. Um, and, you know, secondarily for me personally, you know, I really think about my success in terms of impact. You know, how many children can we serve? How many communities can we serve? Um, how many children can I, you know, personally say that, you know, I have had a hand in maybe improving, touching, giving them opportunities, touching their lives, giving them opportunities. Um, and, you know, I think the times where I've had the most internal conflict about, about, you know, professionally about my career has been when that alignment, again, around the values, you know, thoughts and actions have been out of step, you know, so that's kind of where I would define success. Um, so secondly, you're saying, what do, what do people need to be successful? What do I think people need to be successful? I think they need clarity around their values mm -hmm. and, and an understanding of how to prioritize your values because there will be times when certain values will come into conflict, you know, and you need to understand which one, which ones rise to the top for you. You know, the but for these, you're not going to be able to be happy. And, and for me, you know, as I shared, you know, I discovered that joy is one of my top values, which was kind of a weird one if you think about it, right? Yeah. Like, you know, is that bad or good? Like, how do you? And I just realized that for me, you know, I want to feel joy. I want to help create joy. I want to give joy to others. And I want people to, to feel that level of contentment and fulfillment in their work which I can 
influence, right, in my position with, with the team that we have. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't like it when people take themselves too seriously. Like, I want them to be able to bring their full selves to work. I want them to be able to have fun at work. And then I want them to be motivated as hell to get their work done, you know. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, I think the team that we have right now is so strong. And I think that they all embody those, those types of um, those traits. Um, I also think, you know, I mean, some of the basic, you know, success fundamentals, right? That's the name of your podcast. I mean, you, you need to be self-motivated, right? And you can find that self-motivation if you find the right thing for you, right? And so I 100%. knew, right, like going to this big law firm was not it for me because there just came a point in time where I, I dreaded it. And, you know, I, I'm not proud of that. But, you know, I was dragging my feet and it was just not inspiring. I was not excited. I was, you know, I wasn't even burnt out. I was almost like bored, maybe, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. disinterested, disinterested in what was happening. And you know, that's not the right thing. Um, you need to have strong work ethic. You need to um, take pride in your work. You need to have integrity. You need to, you know, what you say is what you mean. And what you say is what you follow through on. You know, you need to... Um, strive for excellence, not for anyone else, but for yourself, you know, and I think those are the kinds of things, you know, that, that will make you a successful person. And a lot of it has to do with finding that fit for yourself, because, you know, not everyone is meant to be a lawyer, not everyone is meant to be an accountant, but, you know, everyone is meant to do something to provide value to the world. So you need to figure out what that is. Absolutely. And then being successful in a nonprofit, oh man, I would say that you need to be able to be comfortable in ambiguity. Because nonprofit organizations mm. are, you know, I've said this many times, like we do not have the simple and um, the simple and clean discipline of a PL. How do we measure and define our success, right? It is something that is a constant conversation. What is your vision? vision? mission, mm-hmm. logical model, theory of change, however you want to, you know, however, whatever semantics you have, how do you define your own success? And that question is something that you can spend, you know, 40 years discussing, right? Because mm-hmm. you could say, have we moved people out of poverty? What if we use instead of, you know, that's a really hard metric, you know, it takes like two generations <laughs> to figure yeah. that out. 100%. Can we use a proxy? Can it be college grad? Can it be college matriculation? Can it be high school grad? What about what's going on in third grade? What's going on in sixth grade? Let's fight about it. Let's argue about it. And they're just going around in circles. And meanwhile, the team is like, hello, you know, like we have we have the SATs tomorrow. I don't need to be a part of this long-winded <laughs> conversation around how we define success esoterically, philosophically, and then practically, right? And so again, I'm like, if we just had the simple discipline of a PL, like, yes. Just one, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it. I, I no, absolutely. No, I get it. I get it. So, you know, there will be ambiguity and it will be constant because these conversations will come up and come up. And then the consequences of these conversations or the after effects, you know, are there's so much trickle down and it's, it's tough. And I think it's really tough for people who initially come from, you know, maybe a more corporate or private sector background where they're like, what's my task? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you what, what are you looking for and you know it's not always that easy so and there's a lot of like there's the ambiguity piece and then there's a lot of 
needing to step up as a leader and create buy-in for your own initiative, right? Because again, it's not going to be what's going to create more profit and less loss, right? Like it's like, you think that one thing that we need to pursue is, um, you know, focusing on um, college persistence and success because data has shown that overwhelming number of first-gen low-income students of color don't come back second semester, first year. Fine. Mm -hmm. So now you want us to, okay, so great research. Thanks for the proposal. What do you think we should do? Well, I want to spend money. I want to hire extra people. I want to do X, Y, Z. I want to do college visits. I think that we'll have this program. And I'm like, okay, so how much do you think that's going to cost? I'm like, okay, that's a lot of money. So now you're asking me to go out and raise money to do that. Is it going to be successful? You have to convince me. You have to convince your colleagues. You have to convince board members, you know? So every time you you, you see a problem spot, you have to problem yeah. solve and then get everyone to buy in to kind of what you think the solution is because so much of what we're trying to do is just untested and unknown, right? There are these, there are these big gaps, right? Absolutely. And so how, how, here are some theories around what might help, you know, low-income first-generation college students come back that second semester. And this is, I mean, this is all true, right? There's a huge dropout rate after first semester. You go home for winter break, never come back. And so we, we have tried, into, and this is a real life example where we had this, we, we launched a program a few years ago to help address this persistence issue. But, you know, it's these new ideas and, you know, it can be anyone on the team that comes up with the idea, but then all of a sudden you're the one that's being that campaign rally or manager saying, okay, everyone, I really think that this will work, you know, and if we only just had $150,000, we could pilot it for two years and like maybe get some results and then raise more money. So, yeah, yeah, it's not, I can, I can see, I can see why in the beginning of our conversation, you might be led to think some of this might or should be the responsibility of the government. Because I'm listening to you describe, and actually I knew a few friends of mine that were, they came for one semester in college and the next semester because of financial issues had to drop out. And then I'm imagining you and your organization trying to solve that problem and raise money for that problem. I'm like, wow, that's a big responsibility for people that are doing this on their own (laughs) to, to try to fix that error can someone please help us? And I'm like, well, who else would it be other than the government to some capacity? So that's tough. So what role from a, just a nonprofit perspective in general, do you think nonprofits play in the cohesiveness and the organization of society? I don't know if that's too broad of a question, but, um, but, but maybe you do have some insights on that. What is the role of nonprofits specifically? Like, how do you view nonprofits' role within an economy or a culture or society? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. It's and it's fascinating because I think if you zoom out a lot, right, and you look at other countries, they don't have this this culture of nonprofits and private philanthropy. You know, I I mean, uh, I'm glossing things over, but you know. I went to this conference in, in 2014, actually, um, for people from the Korean diaspora that were all over the globe. And so we met Koreans from Russia, 
from all over Europe, from South America, all over Asia, you know, and of course, oh, wow. North America. Yeah. It was very, it was very cool. But, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of the, it was a leadership conference and a lot of the folks who were there either worked for, I mean, they worked for the government or they worked for a corporation, right? So I'm there trying huh. to explain what a nonprofit is because oh, wow. of a nonprofit isn't actually, it doesn't exist in a lot of other countries, right? Because you're either public or private. And I'm like, well, we're private, but we do, but we, we don't do it to make money. And then people are just like, what, wait, do you get paid? Are you a volunteer? Like what's happening? You know? <laughs> That's funny. And, you know, Explain that to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and especially my good friends from Northern and Western Europe, they're like, wait, why is there an education problem in the United States? They're, they're so rich. You know, you're even richer than Sweden and whatever, you know, whatever country they're from. Yeah. I, I had to explain property taxes and the funding. And they were just like, wait, that makes no sense. Wouldn't you just perpetuate the same structure? Then I'm like, yeah, you got that really <laughs> quick, you know? Um, but so, and it, so it is a really, you know, uniquely American kind of thing. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, again, and then being able to speak to so many people from other countries really opened my eyes and made me understand kind of, you know, how unique it is and, and, you know, gave me new perspective. I mean, on the one hand, they were saying, it's amazing how generous Americans are to people they do not know, right? That you would find someone who would just give away money because they realize they have a lot of money and they have mm-hmm. a lot more than other people. Like that's like, I just don't know if that would happen in our country. But then again, it's unnecessary because it's handled by the government. Right. Yeah. And, and so I can see both sides of that coin. And, you know, I think in terms of nonprofits, you know, I, I do think that we as a sector need to work really closely with public entities, with municipalities, with states, with the federal government to really address the gaps and the needs that are, are kind of uh, borne out by the data. And, you know, rather than, you know, this might be an unpopular opinion, um, but, you know, rather than kind of just listening to the desires of individual philanthropists and what they want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think that, you know, we have entrusted our governments to, to govern, you know, and so, and they have that volume of data, right? where we can look at it and understand and say, okay, so there's a clear gap here with this need, that need, and the other need. And that's, you know, what a lot of the industry does. And I think, you know, overall, you know, I, 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 I feel like, and I do feel like the sector is like this, you know, I want us to be very collaborative and working on our own collective impact, right? Like there's no, there's no ego, I think, in saying like, I, I have a dream, like I'm responsible for all of these great things. Like that's not, that's not why we exist. I just want us to look at how the kids are doing. And if we need to work with a bunch of other providers, you know, um, you know, homelessness, houselessness, healthcare, you know, and other providers and say, you know, we were able to collectively lift up this child, this family, this community. And that's what I want to see because you know, at the end of the day, again, I kind of want to build towards a future where we don't even really need to exist because we've kind of 
build those gaps, close them. Like we've, you know, we've shared our secrets, you know, with other providers and like, it's just getting done. Um, And because the thing about relying on private nonprofits is that we're not that reliable, right? Like what if our funding dissipates, right? And at the whim of someone or someone's, right? And then we can't provide the services anymore. That's such a scary, it's a scary thought. And like, I don't want, um, you know, children's futures to like hinge on, you know, on a few, a few individual whims. Like that's, that's, um, that's not appropriate to me. There must be something to this, Chris, because this is the second um, CEO of a nonprofit organization that said, (laughs) if and when you make money and you want to be philanthropic in some way, don't, basically don't make your own nonprofit or don't (laughs) this is the second time on the show. So there must be something to that. So for our listeners that are aspiring to great wealth, but also have a philanthropic side to you, let the professionals handle it. They've been doing the research. They've been spending the time to know what, what the data is saying and where that money needs to be spent. So hundred uh, percent. Yes, yes, yes to everything you just said. And Brian, that's funny. I mean, I think, yeah, I was trying not to say that explicitly. Don't start your own nonprofit. Our other guests said it explicitly. Our other guests said exactly what, what Brian just said. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, there's so many good organizations doing great work. And if you look hard enough, you'll likely find one that's very on point to maybe what you want to achieve. And so, you know, I think ultimately having us work together, um, you know, it, 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 it's great. And again, you know, you, you always have to think about like how much of this is me and my ego and how much of this is about the actual impact and seeing the change that I want to see. Because, you know, it, it, it can be a dangerous thing to have so many organizations that are kind of similarly missioned trying to do the same thing. You kind of, you know, again, like, Let's work together versus trying to trying to take credit for what's happening. You know what's funny? I the, your I have a dream uh, mission is very near and dear to me. Brian and I we're we're now almost like best friends. Almost, I mean, we actually probably are. we talk every day. Like yeah, we, are. we are, we uh, are. So <laughs> give me credit. You know, it's uh, <laughs> because Brian knows where I'm from. I'm from I'm from Georgia, Atlanta, and growing up we i was in an impoverished situation right and uh knowing what your mission is and what i have a dreams mission is i would absolutely love so it's funny because you know if i'm just being candid i want to become wealthy to partner with somebody like who understands it i don't think because like you said i think wealth can create ego and then you think that you know what's right but then like you said you have an organization that it's been here for 40 years, who's done the research and know exactly how to deploy resources and deploy funds to make the biggest change. And I think that would, I think that's the thing, gain wealth. He has something that's near into your heart that speaks to you and partner with the person or partner with the organization that knows exactly what you're trying to solve or know exactly how mm-hmm. to solve the issue that's near and dear to you. And then just let them just get out their way. Right. Um, and, if we had an I have a dream where I grew up, you know, just seeing how people that 
really don't know you, but they have a, a interest in you being successful in this world, whether it's through a trade school or whatever. Because I think that a lot of people in these impoverished situations are operating off survival mode, right? And you wonder why if and when you have survival mode, the, if you know the Maslow's hierarchy of law, I mean the the Maslow's hierarchy. If your if your basic necessities aren't met, your mind shifts to a survival mode, and all the morality goes out the door. So if you have somebody who's has a vested interest in be helping the community become successful, so at least you're not worrying about having enough money to just survive, to eat, to have your lights on. You know, you have a functional uh, life to you not worried about that. I think you you create a better society as a whole. Um, so that's an aspiration of mine, just to throw that out there. That's what I, I want to do eventually when I do become with it. But, um, absolutely. Absolutely. You should, uh, well, we'll definitely keep in touch, Chris, you know, <laughs> we, we, actually, um, we have had several programs graduate out of Atlanta, including oh, one, wow. recent one that we did through AD Williams, the church, um, mm-hmm. in Atlanta. And, um, we're actually right now trying to start up another program in Atlanta. One of our board members is, is based there. And um, is very interested in starting, you know, maybe trying to fund a new program. But um, just, I mean, absolutely everything, you know, just want to co-sign and give a plus sign to everything that you said, especially around, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of need. We talk about that a lot. And, you know, our staff, our program directors, you know, they, they are the ones who are day in and day out with our families. They kind of help to manage that that bottom, I think, rung of the period pyramid for the for the dreamers and families, so that you know, if if children are hungry, if they are yeah. exhausted because they have not had a good night's rest because of any myriad number of reasons, including the fact that they might not have a bed or a house to sleep in, um, they are not primed to learn and be their best selves. I mean, they don't <laughs> care. They do not care. Yeah. I'm telling you. They, yeah. They, yeah. yeah. Eugene, I have a random, really, really random question. Okay. You, I, I've been on the campus of Temple, and yeah. the surrounding area of Temple is one of the worst neighborhoods of Philadelphia. Do you think that had any impact on your desire to get into the nonprofit sector? Like just leaving Temple, seeing the way it was, and seeing how much the families suffer? Uh, you know, I think. I had a similar experience at Penn, you know, uh, in West Philadelphia. Um, And I think a lot of it for me was formulated in college because I was really lucky to be able to just kind of study all of these things that I was just interested in. And so, you know, I was a political science major, but um, there was a new professor that we had recruited to the poli-sci department when I was an undergrad who taught kind of race, ethnicity focused, civil rights, civil liberties classes, gender focused classes. I took all of his classes. And I also, I think maybe the real spark if I'm from going to drill down is, you know, I was an Asian American studies minor. And it was a it was a new, a newish program that was established, I think, in 1997, right? And I started college in 99. And a, uh, a bunch of people like campus activists that I knew had really fought for the establishment of the program. 
Um, you know, there was an Africana studies, there was, uh, mm. you know, Chicano, Latin, Latinx studies. And, you know, so we, we established a program in Asian American studies and it just gave me the vocabulary and the um, kind of framework to understand my own experience, you know, in the United States and, um, you know, a lot of the things that I think I had felt like I, I knew even in high school, I'm like, I get really mad when things are unfair. Right. Yeah. 100%. And then I'm like, okay, unjust. That's what it, you know? And, and right. I was always really mad about like this, the concept of fairness and not fairness. And, you know, um, my high school was fantastic. You know, it was, it was a 20% Asian American probably, but there was still, there was still stuff that happened. You know, I experienced a lot of overt racism growing up like a ton, you know, now that I think about it. And so learning about, Asian American studies in college, I was like, oh, that's it. Yeah. This is why I'm mad. <laughs> and this is why, you know, and, and again, I, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation with my parents, you know, I had seen a lot of things happen to them that were racist and, you know, but they, they always lived their life with a lot of integrity and treated everyone with a lot of fairness, you know, regardless of kind of their background and who they were. And um, I think something just sparked in me in the Asian American mm-hmm. studies program, it just really sparked. And I just, you know, I, I got so mad. I stayed mad for years. Those were good mm-hmm. years. I, I love being that angry. Um, so, <laughs> so that was it then. So the, the, that was, that was probably the there spark was. that pivoted you. Cause I, I, yeah, I guess exposure is one, but then something has to make you, something has to happen for you. Like, you know, I'm just going to pursue this cause it's near and dear to your heart. And you know, like you said, like not, you, you thinking about what happened to your parents to you you're like oh yeah that's yeah no this can happen let me go ahead and try to figure out and do what i need to do to change it i, I think loved being that angry i love that line <laughs> <laughs> i want to be that angry again somebody get me mad please i want to be like that again <laughs> eugenia you you're very inspirational um and i'm pretty sure that when people are uh listening or when they listen to this they're going to be inspired to do something and i want to ch- I want to ask you something. If you cover, of course, you you don't have to respond to this now. But you said that uh, your biggest success story is finding the courage to live your convic your live your convictions and your values. What does that mean for the audience? Yeah, I think uh, you know when I, when I think about that, my my conviction and my values. There's a couple of you know pivotal points. One, I think, is leaving the law firm, you know, and deciding to go back to the nonprofit space. Mm-hmm. It was actually a very, very easy decision for me because I had pl- I planned it. You know, that was kind of my path. I just bumped up the date a bunch. You know, I thought that I would stay yeah. at the law firm a little bit longer. Um, I managed to pay off my law school loans, but now my on un- my undergrad, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever <laughs> I, I had planned. I'm like, I can't. I just need to I just need to, you know, move on. And um, that was a really, but, you know, it was an easy step, but it was a very important step, you know, Mm -hmm. that I took because I could easily see how you can get golden handcuffed into that, into that lifestyle. 100%. You know, so I very intentionally continued to live exactly as I lived in law school when I, when I went to the firm, same, same tiny studio apartment, same grocery budget, you know, peanut butter jelly sandwiches. And like, I'm not 
going to buy furniture. I'm not going to buy, but you know, all these things that were happening around me. I'm like, I'm going to just chill. Like I have two years, just, just bang it out, you know? 100%. So, you know, I had a plan and, and, I, and I, and I stuck to it and I moved it up. And then I think, you know, the, the tougher, the tougher parts of kind of living my value and convictions have come more recently where, you know, I, again, 20 year old Eugenia would have been like, this is great. You know, you have this great job with this great organization and, you know, what, what is there to complain about? Right. And then really starting to introspect and say like, but what about the really big picture, you know? And so I've, I, I mentioned, you know, I, I'm, you know, very focused on kind of the level of impact I can have. And I'm like, what good is this impact I'm having? If actually I'm just undoing so much of it through the perpetuation of the systems that, you know, have created the need for this organization and trying to really understand that and unpack it and, and then make some decisions about the way that, I work and I lead this organization. And it was honestly- Eugenia, not, not to slow you down there, but can you repeat what you just said? The last two sentences, because in there, there was something heavy and I, I want to hear it again. Please repeat what you just said. <laughs> uh, please. Um, uh, un, undoing the, what good am I doing if I am? Go ahead. Right, so, so I'm all about impact, right? Yeah. So if I'm right. like having this great impact, what good is it if I'm actually undoing it and then some by just perpetuating the systems that are creating the need for I have a dream, right? So it's like, if I, if, if, if I'm looking at this, right, as a really big picture societal kind of issue and like, I'm, I'm like being very critical towards the nonprofit industry, nonprofit industrial complex, you know, and we can all, you know, be very self-critical, right? But I, and again, your, your larger societal questions and even thinking about the, the role of the nonprofit sector and understanding that's like not even a sector in other countries, right? I'm like, am I doing a disservice to the children that we serve if, you know, the children that we serve today, great, we're helping them out, but their children and their children's children, like, are they going to continue to need these services because of what I'm doing? Right. Because I'm basically kind of letting the government and all these other things atone, right, atone and wash themselves of what they need to do by like continuing to just hustle and get out there and raise money from super wealthy people, you know, who, mm -hmm. you know, maybe if we just, you know, had a slightly different structure or system, you know, we wouldn't need to have this this virtuous cycle of me constantly raising money from super wealthy people and like bringing it back into the under, you know, underprivileged communities. Right. So I don't, I know that might be a little bit heady. No, <laughs> that is, no, no, that this was is beautiful. It. That was beautiful. No, that was amazing. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you for breaking it down. Yeah. So, and that, that, that was very hard for me, you know, last year kind of having this realization, like, am I doing good work? Or am I just kind of sitting on top of this organization that, you know, is maybe perpetuating the problem, you know? And I really, I mean, honestly, I struggled with that a lot internally. And I, I went to all these different like groups of meetings of executive directors who were talking about this too. And, you know, and I ultimately think there's a way to be here and do good work, but also not act like there isn't a, a, also, also a larger systemic challenge, Absolutely. right? And, and that's kind of, I'm still waiting my way through that right now. 
Brian, I, I, I think it's time because I'm very interested in <laughs> what, what she's going to say with these two questions. So you have to drop the bombs on them. Oh, no. Get ready. Get ready, Gina. Okay. First question. And we leave these intentionally vague to inspire thought. What is your overall perception of money? And second question is, what role do you feel power plays in success? That's a really good question. <laughs> so my perception of money You know, I feel like money is a wretched thing. It is because we need it, right? And it can fuel so much desire and innovation and motivation and inspiration. And at the same time, it can be used, it can be wielded as a weapon, you know? And if... You know, I was reading um, uh, Homo Sapiens and it, it just really struck me the beginning of the book where, you know, he talks about current, like the creation of currency and, you know, uh, but pre previous to that, like the thing that has propelled, you know, Homo Sapiens and humans, right, is the fact that we can believe in the same fiction. And so money is just this fiction that we've made up that we all believe in right? But it's nothing. It's nothing without that belief, right? And we have allowed it to become, instead of something that serves us, we, we are serving it. And so mm. I have never really been interested in the accumulation of wealth or maximizing my income, I, which is easy for me to say, sitting in a place of extreme privilege, right? My parents provided more than enough for me. I had a, you know, secure, safe, comfortable, privileged childhood, you know, and um, I continue to, to have material comfort, right? So I just want to acknowledge like, it's easy for me to say that, you know, without ever having really suffered around money, but I've also never been obsessed with, or even that interested in accumulating it. Like I need enough to get by and I have enough to get by. I'm very lucky, you know? Um, but I think I do have like a somewhat complicated relationship with money because, you know, I, I'm always thinking like, you know, money is here to serve me. I am not here to serve money and chase after it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in college, I was a communist and all of those <laughs> things. So, you know, I have like some other thoughts about money and then power uh, was your question around power. You know, what is my perception of it or how important is it to success? Why don't we touch on perception of power? Yeah, I think that, what was it? The firm? That was like money. First you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the respect. Sometimes I think, you know, that order might be wrong, right? Like it, people, people ultimately are looking for respect. And I think they're looking to be loved and needed and hopefully to be influential. And I think that the, there are kind of couple paths, like you money and then you have more power and influence, right? But then you can, there's also another path where you can seek power first, you know, political elected officials, right? Often um, public servants do not make a lot of money, but can become extremely influential 
and extremely respected. But um, I think that power is a huge concept and dynamic in the United States, you know, particularly around um, race, ethnicity, gender, right? And, you know, power and authority are often completed, right? Like I might have authority, like just uh, formalized authority in my role, but that doesn't necessarily mean I have power, right? Um, and as a as a as a Korean American female, you know, I'm relatively petite compared to a lot of people in the United States. Like, even my size and stature has like I think impacted me a lot in terms of like my own journey in terms of my career. Um, and so I had this realization last year in terms of the a lot of the advice that has been given to me around you know leadership and management. You know, I've worked with several different executive coaches. Um, so much of the advice I was given early on in my career was essentially around like my stature, like, you know, leaning in and doing power poses and like all this. You know, I don't know. There's I just got very self-conscious about yeah. how I was sitting when you said that. I was like, I was like, oh like my God, I'm, yeah. I'm not sitting right at all. This is not <laughs> But, but there's this amazing, there's a, there's a very, very, very famous and popular TED talk about power poses. And this woman uh, researcher did tons of research around, you know, women, if they stand in a certain way and if they hold themselves in a certain way in the boardroom, automatically garner the attention and respect of the others in the room. And um, I once had this executive coach, is so horrible, but she... Um, you know, I had been given this feedback years ago that I was simply too young for a role, which is funny because the person giving me this feedback didn't know my age. But, you oh, know, wow. she, so, so this executive coach told me that maybe I should, I swear to God, she said this, maybe I should gain weight because then I would look older. What? Uh, yeah, I, what? I handed that. And so, of course, I, I immediately said, that's dumb. I'm not going to do that. And she said, oh, good. I'm glad yeah, you said that. I'm like, what are you testing me? You're fired. Like, like, what, is what, do you, what is this? <laughs> no, I'm like, yeah, what? Yeah, right. Like, what is this? So all of this advice I realized last year, I'm like, people are basically trying to make me into an old white man. Like, stand this way. Dress this way. Lean across the table like this. Gain weight. Maybe wear glasses. Like all advice that has been given to me. I'm like, You're like a receding ha- hairline. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Exactly. Yeah. Start losing hair. Dumpy. Become like a dumpy, frumpy. You know. And I'm like, why? I'm like, they're literally just trying to change my my aesthetic so that it fits like some some predefined notion of leader and power. And wow. and I just. You know, I was like, wow, I, I, I need to start from scratch and go back to who I am, you know? And so I, I completely changed, you know, the way that I approached my work. First, I found an amazing executive coach who made me realize, like, you cannot be any other version of a leader but the one that you are. And this might be a newer role for you, right? This is around four years ago, but, but you'll figure it out, but it has to come from within you. Nobody else's version of you nobody else's perception of you matters, right? What are the things that make you successful? Lean into that. And, you know, so I, I, I changed so much of kind of even my style because I had, you know, all of this conflicting information in my head around what it means to be 
powerful, right? And like the boss and like looking a certain way, acting a certain way, you know, and, and managing a certain way, being, you know, really, you know, hardcore or whatever that is, right? Someone else's, someone else's notion of being like a tough boss. And like, that's not me, right? Like my primary value is joy. Like I'm not going to <laughs> be a yeller or, you know, like a paper ripper upper and all this ridiculous stuff. And I realized I'm like, I need to inspire and motivate people to want to do their best work. And literally, you know, me saying like, I really think you could have done better or like, this is not like, they're just so disappointed in themselves that they like understand and they like are just like, you know, yeah. and, and, and when I present and when I am in a meeting, all of these things, I'm like, I just need to do me. I can't be preoccupied with the way I'm putting my hands akimbo or whatever. I mean, literal, <laughs> this is like advice. This is advice that, that has been given. And I'm like, then I'll overthink it. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. the more authentic you can be, the better of a leader and a more powerful you'll be, you know, your, your power is in your authenticity. And if it doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. And that's not the organization for you. You know, I, I think that is like some confidence that I had in myself to say, like, if they're not going to accept me this way, then it's just not, it's just not a fit. 100%. Uh, Eugenia, that's awesome. 100%. And, and I can talk to you all day. Goodness gracious. Um, I, this is probably, this has been a fantastic show. But as, as we begin to, to wrap up, we want to give you a platform to speak about. I have a dream and, you know, how people can, you know, contribute and participate in things of that nature. So the floor is yours. Thank you so much. So the I Have a Dream Foundation, uh, we are a movement to empower young people to achieve their dreams through education and mentorship. And we believe that the long term investment in our youth, uh, we call them dreamers, is absolutely worth it. So we like to say we support them from first grade to first job or kindergarten to career. You know, we are with them every day after school, over the weekends and on the summers for 13 to 15 years. And, and once our dreamers graduate from high school, we support them financially with some funding that they can use towards their post-secondary uh, tuition expenses. Uh, we've been around for 40 years and we have touched the lives of about 20,000 young people. We are currently in 14 areas around the country, um, cities and some rural areas, and we're working with about 4,000 youth today, anywhere from kindergarten through the end of their post-secondary experience. Um, we would love to work with anyone who's interested in supporting us through their time, their talent, or their treasure. You can find us online at www.ivadreamfoundation.org or IHDF National, um, which is our handle across all social media platforms. Um, our headquarters are in New York City. Um, but as I mentioned, we are in you know, 14 different cities and rural areas around the country, including Los Angeles, Haley, Idaho, Miami. Uh, we're in Colorado in both Denver and Boulder, um, just by way of example. So please look us up. Um, and if you are so inclined, you can reach out to me directly at any time. I'll, I'll give you my email address, which is EOH at IHAD for IHaveADream.org. So thank you so much. And, and Chris and Brian, thank you so much for this opportunity. I've really 
really enjoyed it. It's been pretty cathartic for me, actually. So thank you. <laughs> 100%. And don't worry, everyone. We would definitely have all of Eugenia's information in the show notes. So you can click, you can participate, you can donate, you can support this cause. Because based just hearing and having our conversation today, the I have a dream is something that I would like to support too. So, I, Same you, know, here. you know, based on what, based on what you're trying to do and it's near dear to my heart because I was one of those kids. So that's why it's, it speaks to me in a, in a certain way. Um, I learned so much from this conversation, Eugene. I know the, one of the, one of the things that stood, I mean, stood out to me in terms of what your definition of, of success was, was you can never really peak. You can really, you can't really have peak performance in something that you're not truly passionate about regardless. You could do a great job, but in mm-hmm. terms of hitting that peak, and like and like hitting your stride, you can never be that unless you're doing something that's near and dear to your heart or you have passion for it. So well said. That was that was amazing. So thank you again, Eugene. I know that you're very, 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 very busy. Um, thank you again for spending this time with us. And we will definitely see you all next week. This concludes another episode of Success Fundamentals. We hope you found today's discussion useful to your life in some way. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook.